Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to After the Jag Corps, navigating your career progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the Jag Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. We are going to be talking about getting in the right mental mindset for approaching your career progression as you leave the military. And my guest today is one, not only a friend, but a colleague who I met in Garmisch. It is Dr. Brian Price. Brian is a West Point graduate who spent his formidable years in the Army as an Apache pilot. And then he finished up as the director of West Point's Countering Terrorism Center before moving over to academia on the outside, I'll let him tell a little bit more about journey because actually he's more familiar. So Brian, <laughs> great to have you on the podcast and it is so good to see you. Thanks, Tom. Uh, when lawyers usually contact me, I get nervous, but in this case, I'm happy to be on your podcast. Congrats on all the success. Well, congrats to you too. We're going to talk about your success here, but Brian, I just really kind of gave a thumbnail you know, if you want to elaborate a little bit more, uh, if you care to, on where you've been and where you are now and what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. I grew up in God's country, as we say, down the Jersey Shore. <laughs> you know, as a three-sport athlete growing up and then ended up playing baseball at West Point. Played there for four years. And as you mentioned, I was commissioned as an aviation officer. So I flew Apache helicopters for the first half of a 20-year career. And then the Army sent me to Stanford University around the midpoint uh, to go get a PhD, which I was able to finish in, in three years. And then I went back and taught at West Point, initially in their Department of Social Sciences, teaching international relations and national security. But then after a deployment to Iraq, I came back and I was asked to be the director of the Combating Terrorism Center. Sorry, I messed it up. Countering no and combating. No worries. Same mission, same task. So no harm there. And so I ran that for six years, which for those of you that may not be familiar with, it's a really interesting organization. Even though we are inside the Department of Defense at the U.S. Military Academy, we did original research on terrorist groups using their materials, uh, some of which the, the JAGs on here probably saw before we did. We had TSSEI clearance, so we were able to see those before they were declassified and do research on them. But then we performed that public good and declassified those for other researchers who don't have clearances to do research. So really interesting time there. I was there for six years from 2012 to 2018. And then my wife told me it was time to get out. So I retired as a lieutenant colonel in 2018 and started the Bucino Leadership Institute at Seton Hall University. Another interesting outfit in the sense that we were starting from scratch. They had a, a leadership program in their business school, but they decided to blow this up university-wide. 
And that's where I took over. I want to jump in here, Brian, because yeah. this is the first thing that I think is really educational or to highlight for people that are nervous about transitioning. So you left the Combating Terrorism Center and you stood up a leadership program at Seton Hall. But the first question I have is how did you convince them into that, hey, I'm the guy to do this. I've got a political science background. I flew helicopters. And for the last six years, I've been doing terrorism stuff. So how did you get over to that? And what was your success in getting that job? So I faced my own fair share of imposter syndrome in that initial move. As a college professor, you know, it wasn't like I was changing industries so much going from law to manufacturing or something. So it was school to school, but it was going from a military academy setting to a private Catholic institution. So pretty different in the, in the cultural aspect. My decision to leave West Point, I did study leadership while I was there. So, you know, my kind of niche in the counterterrorism field was in leadership decapitation, what happens to terrorist groups when you take out the leaders. So in my PhD studies and my research, I dug deep into the leadership research. But with that said, I had no idea what to do when I got to Seton Hall when it comes to leadership development. And again, this is a whole other topic we can talk about, but I felt like I had to reinvent myself while I was there, which is scary. But I left six years of studying the worst type of human leadership, and I felt like this was an opportunity to reverse that and start developing great leaders and like put all of my energy into doing that. I would be lying to you if I would say it was not a scary transition for me. And for the record, ladies and gentlemen, Brian and I only knew each other for a year before he retired. So when he says six years are the worst type of human leadership, he is not talking about me. <laughs> He's talking about, talking about terrorists. Yes. yes. Yeah. I just thought that was worth clarifying. <laughs> but Brian, you talk about, okay, that you had to face your own imposter syndrome, but you ended up having a quite successful program there that went on to win, for lack of a better term, a, a national collegiate championship. Yeah. So when I first got out, I kind of do what I think you should do, which is kind of canvas what is out there. You know, what are the, some best practices from what other schools are doing? And to be honest, and I'm actually writing a book on this now, leadership in higher education is a failure, in my opinion. And yet it provides the greatest resource for developing the next generation of leaders and solving our real problems. But we're wasting our time there. Not to dig too deep into that, but I would paint a broad brush and say that leadership development at the undergraduate level, when you look at a lot of schools, it is nothing more than an ad hoc motivational speaker series. And there's so many more things that we can do there. So I built a program from scratch and I had the luxury of having a student for four years, every week, every semester over four years, which is a tremendous opportunity in terms of duration when you compare it to most leadership development programs, which are a semester long or even a year long. And then on top of that, we really pride ourselves on experiential leadership. So it cracks me up that how many leadership programs do you know that involve the student actually leading <laughs> and getting feedback on their leadership. There's almost none, but we I could bore you to tears with that. But I created something from scratch. And as you mentioned, last year, this past June, the Association of Leadership Educators awarded our program with the most outstanding program award. 
in only our fourth year. The year before that, a program from Notre Dame won it. And the year before that, Rice University won it. So I felt like we were really putting a little Seton Hall on the map, if you will. A couple other tidbits there. First of all, talk about the cultural change. I mean, you're talking about going into a private Catholic institution. And here is Brian Price, Lieutenant Colonel, coming from that military setting. And someone described military veterans like this. And I think I shared this with you yesterday. We're like zoo animals. Everybody loves them, but nobody knows how to deal with them or care for them. How did you overcome the cultural gap, if you will, going from a rigid, as often portrayed, military setting where you are developing leaders to the civilian setting where you're trying to develop leaders? It was challenging. I I think I had the biggest help from the provost and the president at the time. The, The provost was Karen Boroff who actually was an adjunct, did a sabbatical up at West Point in their behavioral sciences leadership. I ended up giving a leadership talk to the West Point Association of New Jersey. I saw the parents that were there. And the person that sat at my table was Karen Boroff. And the topic was leadership. She said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm actually retiring. She said, well, I'm starting this crazy idea up. Can you come on in? So she greased a lot of the gears. However, to paint the picture of the two cultures, you go from West Point military, where it is apolitical, or at least it used to be, you know, like our, uh, won't get anybody in trouble here, at least it used to be political. And then, although religion is important in the military, it is not, you know, it's not branded as a religious institution. So then I go from that to a small college that was Catholic and private. And I think the biggest thing that I had to overcome was for anyone that's in higher education that is that tries to create university-wide programs, you have to push past a lot of friction, right? So there's a lot of turf wars and rice bowls that are getting spilled and people where they're very leery of others. And so I came in, even though I have a PhD from Stanford, even though I have a you know academic book, and even though I was at the rank of associate professor and then academy professor. I was perceived as a military guy coming into an academic institution, right? For the people that didn't bother to read my bio, I was a military guy. They didn't, it didn't matter what my academic background was. So I felt like it was a culture shock in that sense. Plus, very different in terms of changing your leadership styles. And I'm sure some of your folks that are transitioning can appreciate this. How you lead an organization in the Department of Defense is a little different from how you lead civilian students, right? So like there, there's, a, there's a pretty big change there. Look, all leadership is universal. We're, we're talking about, you know, obviously respect and those sorts of things, but how you relate to people, how do you motivate people? How do you inspire people? So it was real a challenge that I look forward to in terms of my own emotional intelligence and, and how do you become you know, more effective as a leader in a different environment? I had an author who wrote about leadership because oftentimes... When I've talked to my guests, they said, oh, what we bring to the table on the civilian side is leadership. And I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Sean Georges. What does leadership look like? How do you quantify that when you are going out into the civilian world? So are you talking about for leadership development or are you talking about the leadership that we bring to the table as veterans going into the? Yes. First off, I'm a big advocate. And I I did this with with the, you know, our leadership students at, at Seton Hall. I am a big advocate of self-awareness first. 
So really do taking stock of what your strengths are, what your vulnerabilities are as a leader, and being real crystal clear on those, right? Because I think, especially at the time when many of your JAG audience is going to be transitioning, we're not talking they're coming out at 24 years old, 25 years old. We're talking, you know, mid-career professionals, essentially, that are, are shifting gears. And so, you know, don't fool yourself by thinking that you're one thing and you're not. I'm a huge advocate of you have to be able to take your strengths and adapt them to the situation. So I'll give you a great example. You have a great sense of humor. I don't want to blow up your ego here, but you have a great <laughs> sense of humor and you use it at appropriate times for maximum effect. There are some of your audience out there, some are Jags, and, and you know, I don't know if Jags are necessarily known for their sense of humor, but it would not be a good fit if they tried to bring that into the into the corporate world or wherever they're going to be. So, you know, my thing is self-awareness first, figure out what you're good at, and then be authentic. That doesn't mean if you are an, an introverted JAG officer that you have to come out and be completely opposite, you know, when you're in a either an in-house setting or or another job that you're in. I feel like you just got to be authentic to yourself. So I don't push any one leadership style. I push what is the most effective style for you? So you you retired in 2018, just to give people a timeline. Four years you were at Seton Hall. And then last year you left Seton Hall at going out on top as a national champion. He does, <laughs> and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, he does not have a national championship ring on, but he went out as a national championship. And again, just an incredible story. You you took a risk. And what was that risk? What are you doing now? So the risk was I left a perfectly good job with benefits and pay and you know my contract had just been renewed but it was a it was a risk because i felt like like a lot of your audience i'm a big believer in relentless improvement and i felt like uh the university for whatever reason was not willing to provide the resources that i felt we needed to uphold our promise of a quality four-year leadership development program for our students. Just to give you a little context, in our first year, we brought in 80 freshmen. And then every year after that, we brought in additional you know, teams. So at the end of my four years, we had over 275 students, I believe, in the program total, but with the same amount of people running it. And I was the only full-time person. So long story short is I decided to make the move. Now, Three years earlier, I had started my own business, Top Metal Game, which you announced at the outset of this. And it was a side gig at the time working with initially just athletes on mental performance. And then it has morphed over the years of working with not just athletes, but business leaders on mental performance and leadership. It's morphed into, I'm an executive coach for general officers and SES officials in, in the Department of Defense. So it's an eclectic mix of individuals. And the way I kind of describe it to people is it's a mix of mental performance. So what are those tools that can help you perform at your best when it matters the most? How do you overcome pressure and things like imposter syndrome? And then the other component of it is the leadership style. So I'm an ICF certified leadership coach at the PCC level. And so it's fun because I, when I work with athletes, it's mental performance mostly with a sprinkling of leadership. When I work with business leaders, CEOs, and general officers, it's mostly leadership coaching with a sprinkling of mental performance. So uh, the two are, are really compatible. And just to flush that out a little bit, because I follow you on LinkedIn and I'm friends with you on Facebook, but I think I mostly see them on LinkedIn. 
And by the way, anybody who wants to check this out, the website is www.topmentalgame.com. But Brian, just to flush this out a little bit, when you talk about working with athletes, you're, you're talking about working with everything from a high schooler on an individual basis to working with high school, college teams, and even professional athletes. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. What I say is my kind of age group ranges from 11 to 27, from a middle schooler all the way up to NFL kickers. And, and in between, uh, I work with teams, I work with coaches. I'm coaching a college coach right now that has 25 years of experience and is a former national coach of the year. My job is awesome because every day I feel like if you ever watched the movie, The Matrix, where like Neo is kind of plugging into, he learns Kung Fu in, in about 20 seconds. Given this eclectic mix of individuals that I get a chance to work with, I hope I'm providing them value, but they should know that like I get a fun chance to learn a lot about leadership in all different industries and at levels too. So we're talking mental performance coaching is what you do. And, and, and this is a segue. You've already talked about it. You have gone through it yourself, transitioning from the military to a civilian setting. And, and this is a, a common refrain I hear from folks that are going through it. Is that imposter syndrome? Is that I'm not qualified? And that is why I thought you could talk about approaching transition, both from your own experience to that of being a certified performance coach. So I think this metaphor might resonate with your audience. How many of your audience right now has iPhones? Let's say a large portion, right? How many of those same folks are using iOS 1 software on that? I think we're up to like, what, 17 now, iOS 17? How many folks out there have computers that are still rocking Windows 98? right? Like to date ourselves, like nobody is. And so whenever you get that little ding on your phone that says, do you want to update your, your software? Man, most of us can't wait to just hit that button. But my question to many of you is like, when is the last time that you actually took stock and updated your mindset? And for folks that are transitioning, this is really important because I think the mindset that you go into that transition might dictate whether you A, settle for a job that is first come, first serve, and you just kind of hit the easy button, even though it's not going to fill your cup or fulfill you. Or B, they get in their own head and they can't find themselves because of their identity crisis that they're kind of suffering. Obviously, your audience is well-equipped to understand suicides and transitions and those sorts of things are, are tough for our community. I think when I look at senior leader transitions, you know, one of two problems usually presents itself. One, either they they come out with a, a grandiose sense of entitlement that gives them unrealistic expectations in their next job. And like, it, it's that's a train wreck for corporations to kind of deal with. But I usually see that mostly, you know, I'm painting broad brushes here, but like on the commander side, your JAG officers, I imagine, are probably in this second category, maybe. Not to say that there's not some JAG officers that might transition and be feel overly entitled. But it might be this other section of imposter syndrome, where they feel like their identity in the military and their skills in the military are not going to transition well into the, the private sector and you know corporate law and those sorts of things. 
would it be okay just to talk about imposter syndrome just in general terms so people understand what we're talking about? Absolutely. It's your, hey, this is your platform. I'm just asking the questions. <laughs> but I see you silently there judging me. So I, like imposter syndrome, and by the way, this is a topic I talk to literally corporate elements. And I'll, I'll share a story of a Fortune 10 company that I spoke to on this exact topic. Imposter syndrome essentially is this feeling that you don't feel like you are deserving of your position or your accomplishments. And so what that leads you to do is to play small ball. This is how you internalize it. You look at other people's accomplishments, like your friends and your peers, and you look at their accomplishments and you feel like they are based on their internal forces, their skills, their talents, and their abilities, their raw talent. And then you look at your position or your accomplishments, and you look at it through the prism of you got those because of external forces like luck, timing. Hey, you were just moved right along in the big cog machine of the, the Navy or the Army in terms of uh, promotions. And so you weren't really deserving of that. But here's the challenge is like the effects of that cause you to self-limit. And they cause you to not seek after opportunities or promotions or job opportunities that you really want to, but you're afraid of the failure component of it. And the statistics on this are interesting. 70% of the population suffers from imposter syndrome. It also disproportionately affects women more to men, and it disproportionately affects perfectionists. I <laughs> have to imagine there's a fair segment of your audience that falls into one, if not all three of those categories, right? I'll share one quick anecdote when I, I spoke on this too. I won't say the name of the company, but I think this is telling. They brought me in to talk about imposter syndrome, and this was in the financial industry. So 110 financial leaders jumped on this web call, and the whole hour was on imposter syndrome. Talked a little bit about it, talked about its effects, how to overcome it, which we can talk about next. But we did a live poll and said, how many of you in here feel imposter syndrome at your current job? 92%, Tom, said that they felt it right now. And I told you, 70 is the average. And it made me think that I feel like high-performing organizations might be more susceptible to this than you know just your average, average performers. So I feel like it's high in DOD, but I also imagine it's probably high in some high-profile you know, law firms. And those effects are negative enough if you're just talking about the individual. But now imagine 92% of your team is feeling this way. And what impact does that have on things like problem solving, on admitting that you don't know something? So like, yeah. you know, these mistakes get covered. And best organizations I know is when the leader's like, hey, I don't know the answer to this, but we have a team here that can help us out. So anyways, I think imposter syndrome might be an area that might be negatively affecting your audience. You know, the thought that hit me as you were describing that 92%, I was sort of developing a sports analogy in my head of a of a baseball team where you have a great run and now you're maybe you're reaching the championship or whatnot. And if 92% of your team is feeling that, it gets into that, that whole confidence issue that, oh, hey, you know, if we lose, no big deal. So you're, again, back to playing small ball. You're willing to admit defeat up front. So your question, how do we overcome it? Yeah. So I'll give you a story that I had at Stanford. I was a troop commander for 33 months, taking the same unit across three continents and then redeployed from Afghanistan and immediately found myself in Palo Alto, California. 
So talk about culture shock at its at the highest level. I remember I kept walking around campus the first couple of days touching my side because as anyone has been deployed before, I was like, where's my weapon, right? Like just to make sure it was on me. So a little weird. In my first day there, they had an orientation and an individual sitting next to me, another one of our students. And by the way, the cohort is really small. We're talking 15 people in their PhD program. And the person next to me says, hey, what's your story? I gave him my backstory, army officer here. I was like, what's your story? And he says, well, I graduated college at the age of 16. College. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, I went to uh, UCLA. And then uh, I graduated Harvard Law at the age of 20. And then I worked for law for a couple of years. And I just felt like I wanted to get a PhD. So I came here. Tom, I went home and told my wife, like, I don't deserve to be here. I am not like if this is what <laughs> the kid sitting next to me is, I can imagine the stories of these other 14 people. And I already felt like I was older in the two. I was a history guy at West Point, not a political science guy. So I had to fight through my own posture syndrome. My recommendation to people is like I made a commitment then to get out of my head, move your ego aside and just worry about growth and having a growth mindset. And this is before, if anyone out there wants a great book, it's called Mindset by Carol Dweck. I did a couple of things. Like if you talk to people, they would say I'm known for three things there. Number one is there was no shame in my game asking for help. So I was the guy that would go talk to the professor. I was the guy who talked to my classmates. I would go all these different places. Number two is I carried around a recorder, a voice recorder to all of my lectures. And anytime I had an engagement, it was recorded. Now, first off, how creepy is that? But number two is I did that because I didn't understand the language and there were concepts that they were being thrown out that I wasn't fully aware and I didn't want to miss it. And by the way, my friends would make fun of me, right? Like, what are you doing recording this lecture? Well, it's because at night I would go home and re-listen to them. And I would take notes on the things that I didn't understand and go take the time to look it up because I had to play catch up. I couldn't afford to put on airs of I'm, I'm too smart for this because I wasn't. And then the last piece was, I remember I was in a international political economy class and I don't know much about the economy at all, not a business guy. So I bought a book that was like international political economy for dummies, like literally a for dummies book. It poked out of my bag one day and one of my classmates saw it and kind of gave me a ribbing about it. But the professor saw it and was like, don't make fun of Brian. He's trying to learn, right? Like he's trying to grow. And the one analogy I'll, I'll give to people that will resonate, especially with the military audience, is when you think about pushing past your imposter syndrome, one is self-talk, right? Like you got to get past your self-talk. But I think an analogy that might resonate with people has to do with, think about how we grow muscles physically. And if you think about that, if like, say you want to build your pack and your chest and your tries. Say we're going to do push-ups until we do we reach muscle failure. Well, when you reach muscle failure, we all know what's happening at like the micro level of our fibers. They're breaking apart a little bit. But we know that once, even though how uncomfortable that is, if we give ourselves enough rest, recovery, and nutrition, and time, that those muscle fibers will actually grow back and they'll grow back stronger, allowing us to put more load on and do more push-ups and we build our muscles. I think mentally it is the same exact way. And in order to break past imposter syndrome, you got to avoid that little voice in your head and push past it, even knowing it's going to be uncomfortable. 
I tell my leaders and my, you know, the athletes I work with, I'm like, you can either choose to be comfortable or you can choose to grow, but you can't do both, right? Like if you think about the times in your life, Tom, when you were, you know, experienced the most, most growth, either professionally or personally dollars to donuts. I bet you they were times when you were uncomfortable, whether through failure or adversity, or you're just outside your comfort zone. Yeah, Brian, as you talked it, I think with Jags, the imposter syndrome comes from the fact that we have a unique practice. We do a lot of different things. Typically, you come in, you're doing courts marshal, and you're doing legal assistance. And then maybe you go on to become a carrier doing SJA type work and running a disciplinary Article 15 program. And then you're back to being a staff judge advocate and you're advising on chapters and ADCEPs, or we call them. NJP appeals, investigations, ethics, compliance. And then you go on, maybe the next job is staff attorney. After that, you're now on a strike group advising on rules of engagement and all that other stuff. So you keep picking up all these little things, whereas your civilian counterparts have gone out and maybe they have joined a firm and focused on a limited or specific area researching and then maybe move to another firm or maybe move to an in-house position. And so when we come to that, we don't appreciate or value the continuous learning that we've done because we see maybe Securities and Exchange Commission regulations, or maybe we see global anti-corruption practices, all these things that we haven't done. And all of a sudden we say, I'm not qualified, which gets into that self-talk. And I know this from experience because I have self-talked myself into looking at jobs saying, yeah, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified. It's so ubiquitous, especially with military folks that are transitioning. Again, the path of least resistance is to do the things that you're comfortable with and always doing. And I'm not saying that if you are the Michael Jordan of tort reform or you know whatever like legal specialty that you have that like you shouldn't go after that. But I do think as you know, you you asked before about how does leadership translate out there. I think one skill that is very, that we just take for granted because it's in our DNA, especially those of us that have served in a post 9-11 environment or served pre 9-11 and post 9-11 to see what the world has, has changed. And we were able to adapt with that change. I mean, the two things that I think military people come to the table is that mission first people always mentality. And the mission first, you talked about the continuous learning. We will get the job done. And I think on top of that, where yes, there's probably civilian counterparts that always get the job done. We also add that other element of we take care of the people and have that ethical component, which I think is also perhaps underrated that we just take for granted that's in our DNA. So I don't think that you know JAGs that are transitioning should underestimate the power of those and the need for those, I think, in the outside world. So like on Monday, I'm flying to Phoenix to go to a, a leadership retreat for a company that's in the Midwest. I don't know anything about their industry other than what I've seen online. I haven't participated in their industry. And yet I know that the comments that I'm going to share with them are going to resonate because they're about leadership. And I think we see, you know, your JAG officers see so much of that, that they should not discount any of those strengths when they, when they transition. Yesterday on the pre-call, I shared with you probably what I think is the most challenging question that is often asked of us and then we have to ask ourselves as we go through this transitioning process is what is it that you want to do because 
I think I shared that you know, we've gone 20, 30 years bouncing from job to job looking to, hey, what's going to make me competitive for the next rank? Maybe sometimes we went to jobs that were not really desirable, but we did them. And now we're taking off the uniform. And you shared insight and probably maybe a better thing that we should be asking ourselves instead of what is it that we want to do? And if you could uh, elaborate on that. Yeah, I will. And thank you. I can't take credit for this. This comes from, I have an opportunity to do some some leadership speaking with Tom Chaby, who maybe some of your JAG officers might know. He was a former SEAL Team 5 commander that just retired a couple of years ago after 25 years in the Navy. And by the way, thank you for no Army Navy jokes on the front side. So we're, I think we're building bridges here as well, Tom. So, uh, but in all seriousness, when I was thinking of transitioning out of Seton Hall and what was I going to do, you always hear that question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you get out? What are you going to do when you retire? And Captain Chavy said, this is not the way to approach it. This is not the way to look at it. He said, the better way to look at it is to not ask, what do you want to do when you retire? It's what do you want your life to be like? And man, that was like a that was like a mind explosion for me. And when he talks more about it, he's like, you could do a lot of things. A, most of the people that are transitioning, maybe not most on this uh, uh, audience, but some will have a pension underneath them. And so you do have some type of softer landing than a, no, a normal individual that's that's changing out. But I feel like when you ask yourself, what do you want your life to be like? You ask bigger questions. You know, do you want to work from home? Do you want to work, you know, at a location? Do you want to be in a leadership position? Do you want to be member of squad? And, and I feel like in, in the military, we're usually great at starting with the end in mind, like the objective and backwards planning and reverse engineering it. But I don't think we do that with our careers or our lives this much. And I feel like at the transition point that I imagine many of your audiences transitioning, that's such a great question to ask of what do I want my life to be like, not what do I want to do? Because you can do a lot of things. And just for the record, you know, I'm an army dad. So I have I have some split, affinity, split loyalties, split loyalties. And, you know, someone pointed out to me that it seems like Navy SEALs, when they retire, become very philosophical. And I, I there, you know, there's another guy who's involved in mindfulness. He's out on the Web. So interesting that that comment should come from no other than a Navy SEAL. Brian, while we're talking here, I think we got to throw out a, a head nod to Jim Howcroft. I know Jim doesn't listen to these, but he may listen to this. Uh, and he's actually the one that brought us together when he brought you out to be an adjunct when I was his deputy in Garner. So, Jim, if you're listening, know that your minions are glad to have been associated with you. Brian, we've covered a lot. Is there anything that you would like to give departing thoughts to the audience or have I exhausted your supply? I'm not a smart man, so you've done a lot of exhaustion. And before I share that that last little tidbit, I do want to say, uh, yeah, Jim Howcroft was a such an awesome person, a fantastic officer, somebody I think we both look up to a lot and respect. And once he finds that we're talking, I guarantee you he's going to be listening, if only that we might say a funny story or two about him. But you're okay, sir. We're not going to we're not going to go there on any of that stuff. But in my, I guess my final thing is there's a there's a marketing guru called Gary Vaynerchuk that is based out of New York City. Does a lot of motivational speaking, curses a lot, so it may not be everyone's cup of tea. But he talked about something that he did, which kind of changed his outlook. And it was going to senior 
assisted living homes and, and, and senior citizen homes, talking to people and asking them things about like, what are their biggest regrets? One overwhelming answer that kind of came back or type of answer, if you will, was stuff that they didn't do, right? Whether not asking the girl or the guy out, not doing this career, not going for that job position. And I feel like that's usually what life's biggest regrets are about. And so, again, you know, you can go the safe route, the comfortable route and settle. Or I feel like you can stretch and bet on yourself. And I feel like that latter version is where, at least for me, I feel like I'm living my best life. I'm in my, I'm, you know, it's not easy and it's scary. But I feel like I'm learning I'm providing value to people. I'm reinventing myself. And I say that in the best possible sense of like the better versions of me, as opposed to going to a job, checking that box and just seeing your like, where where is the, the joy in your life? So I'll just leave people with that. You know, if you're thinking about going after that job or making that transition or going for that promotion and doggone it, just go do it. Well, Brian, I know that your message has resonated with me personally. And I, I know that some of the other Jags that I've talked to that it'll resonate with them. I think you've hit a home run here talking about what we see ourselves and talking ourselves out of jobs. And I think that the fact that you have branched out a couple of times into things that are, you know, mo most people coming out of the line look for PMP, project yep. management, and, and that you went to the academic setting, stood up a leadership program, and then jumped ship using a Navy analogy, and then have started this mental performance coaching. So I think that your message resonates with everybody. And I do appreciate your time. Awesome. Always uh, look forward to talking to you, Tom. And uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.